The first point or the, the one thing that really um, mattered in the beginning was to really find a language to really describe sustainability effects in the proper way. And that is not a romantic language. It's not a kind of let's save the world approach, but it's very down to business translating uh, sustainability effects into sales, into growth, into profitability. Hi there and welcome to the Future Ready podcast where we explore how to build future ready organizations in a new never normal. My name is Arne Kötting, founder of Cozen and your host. An effective sustainability strategy doesn't just frame environmental friendliness as a nice to have, but makes sustainability an integral part of the organization. For future ready companies, this means making sustainability a key criterion for deciding which investments to make and which to let go of. But how can we get business leaders on board with such a wide-ranging transformation and mindset shift? Our guest today believes that pushing for sustainability requires framing it as existential for the company's survival. He brings sustainability to the table of the leadership teams through one simple question. What do we need to do to make our business successful in 100 years? His name is Stefan Haber, and he's a communication expert who has worked extensively on topics of sustainability in the chemical industry. When I talked to Stefan earlier this year, Stefan was working at Evonik Industries, the second largest chemical company in Germany and one of the largest specialty chemical companies in the world as a head of sustainability. Going into this role, his goal was, as surprising as this might sound, to get rid of the sustainability department. He wanted to make sustainability so ingrained into Evonik's core processes that a single sustainability department would no longer be needed. And by the time Stefan left Evonik this past January, he had gotten as close to this goal as possible. Evonik's sustainability efforts are widely renowned and highly ranked on multiple benchmarks. Stefan has now moved on to become Head of Communications and Sustainability at the RAG Foundation, the organization that owns most of Evonik's shares. Without further ado, let's hear from Stefan about sustainability strategies, assessing product portfolios, challenges in sustainability journeys and much more. Stefan, welcome to the Future Ready Podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Great being here. Great. Um, Stefan, tell us a little bit about your own personal background and more specifically about your own journey to the sustainability topic. Oh, that's been a long journey. Uh, in fact, um, my own background, I'm, um, I'm a trained banker and I have a background in um, change communication mm -hmm. and uh, political sciences which curiously enough helped a lot just uh, in the in the field of sustainability the political element uh, both the political element but mostly i guess uh, change uh, change management yeah. change communication and that is my my original professional background when i started my career i just entered into um uh, change communication for an mm -hmm. agency And then changed, got on board on company side and um, did uh, internal communication, corporate media, and then heading uh, corporate communication and board office. So that was a, a good preparation, I guess, for all the the dips and the glass that is hidden in the grass. If you try to change something in a in an um, uh, context like that, 
Yeah, and we will talk about the challenges of that specific transformation in terms of internal but also external engagement. Because I, I agree with you, it's got its own dynamics and challenges. But let's talk about Evonik first. How long have you been working there? goes back a long time, in fact. Yeah, I started in uh, 2005. And again, back then I, I started in uh, communications and did communication until um, the end of 2014. And then I launched myself into uh, building the then new sustainability department, which was just a uh, carve out or split it out from the ESHQ department. Mm -hmm. That was in, in 2015. And okay. the idea back then was that until then, of course, there had been a focus on sustainability, but that has had only been in terms of doing risk assessments and only from a risk perspective and uh, compliance um, and regulatory perspective. It was okay. not so much focusing on the product portfolio. Okay. And on uh, the chances and the opportunity lying within uh, sustainability as a business field, yeah. which for us as a chemical company is a, is a major contribution today. Yeah, so rather a defensive strategy when it came to working with sustainability. Yes, I mean, even more so, uh, let's say it was a license to operate because, yeah. I mean, if you're in the chemical industry, it's not just defensive. It's really that it, that safety and, and environmental topics must be uh, first on your priority list. And that is a given. So that's really the license to operate. But again, uh, really doing an assessment, what? Uh, does sustainability mean in concrete numbers and mm -hmm. how does it um, really link into your financial performance? I guess all that was not really well explored and really not so well known. Mm -hmm. Okay, we will look um, in detail uh, um, in a minute on that journey that you had it. But give our listeners some background about Evonik. Maybe some will not know this, even though it's a huge company. 15 billion revenue operating in more than 100 countries. Tell us a little bit about your organization. Yeah, as you said, I mean, Evonik is into um, specialty chemicals and it's um, 15 billion of uh, revenues. It's uh, about um, 80% of our sales from leading market positions, which is not just boasting with how well we do, but this is just describing our business model, uh, which is focused on market leading positions. And, you know, the characteristics of specialty chemicals is just having small volumes mm. with high margins. So it's no bulk uh, businesses. We're doing that in three um, gross divisions, which is uh, specialty additives. That's about coatings, PU additives for a lot of applications or uh, lubricants. Um, then that's, there is a second division, nutrition and care, about um, mainly amino acids, active ingredients for cosmetics and things, and also drug delivery systems like um, nanolipids that we contribute to the mRNA technology, for example. And last but not least, uh, smart materials. That is mainly about um, silica for green tires, for example, or hydrogen peroxide, pH 12. So it's a very wide range of different businesses, which makes it even more interesting to take an holistic view, how it does this all feed into sustainability requirements yes. and how can uh, different sustainability needs on the other side uh, boost our businesses there. 
So you're having, in terms of your, the sustainability contribution, you do this through your own operations and within your own operations, but also through your products, you're helping your clients to become also more sustainable. Exactly. I mean, that is, um, that's the, the very heart of our business um, concept. I mean, as a chemical company, you always have to be aware that you are part of the problem and part of the solution at the same time. So you always have to uh, take this double stand on reducing your footprint and growing your handprint, positive handprint effects. And what you said, I mean, being integrated into the processes of our customers is quite the point here because, you know, it's not that we just, that we sell our products when um, an end market product is already fully designed, but we get on board very early on, mostly working closely together with the RD&I research and development people from in our customer industries. Yeah. And you can see for, we have uh, 460 something million uh, of spendings in RDNI a year. So a very high RDNI ratio, which just reflects the importance of doing research development mm -hmm. together with uh, customers on the one hand side, also together with suppliers on the other hand side. So our focus is really the whole value chain, which is the only view that really makes sense when you're when you find yourself somewhere in the middle of the value chain as a producer of intermediates. Stefan, where's the topic of sustainability organizationally located or who is owning or leading the topic? That's a great question, Anna, because uh, it's very much centralized and very much decentralized at the same time, meaning that the very idea when starting uh, the sustainability department was Uh, getting all the bits and pieces together and to have a central voice within the company or let's say um, a connector to mm -hmm. get the different parts uh, within the company together and to build a framework that allows us as a company to have something like a single voice of truth because if everybody has a different baseline or different mm -hmm. understandings of sustainability, it doesn't really make much sense. So in that regard, we are pretty much centralized with uh, taking the responsibility within the sustainability department. At mm -hmm. the same time, we're quite aware of the fact that we are not doing sustainability ourselves, but we just help others to make their effects visible, mm -hmm. to learn more about their business acumen behind sustainability and to, you know, give an understanding how we can develop our whole portfolio further towards a more, more sustainable future. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's why it's both in a way. So the strategy and the, the targets, the KPIs are developed centrally by you and your team. And the implementation um, uh, is done um, decentral. Exactly. Well, when we started, there was a bit of a, a vision that we had as a department, which was if we do our job really well, then it won't need this department yeah. in the future. And I guess we've come pretty close to that point. Oh, really? You know, in, a, in a way. As you know, all that we've done in the course of uh, the last eight years was about integrating sustainability into the core processes yeah. of the company and not to really have um, any kind of tools or assessments uh, only just within the sustainability world, but directly integrate, ingrain these aspects into the strategic management process, wow. um, capex allocation, risk management, so that we then um, integrate it and let loose. So the senior leadership sees sustainability as an integral part of their business 
and their business strategy? It is. I mean, today you cannot really separate between Evonik's strategy and its sustainability strategy because that is one and the same. The overall strategy of Evonik is next generation. Evonik, maybe we can come to that a bit later. Yeah which is not a marketing claim or a PR strategy, but it's about the question, how do we tackle the different challenges that we find ourselves faced with in a process of huge business transformation? Mm -hmm. And so it didn't make sense to just have a sustainability aspect, something like the sherry on the cake. Yeah. But it was clear from the beginning that we have to, to really go to the pain points and to really get into those main processes, investing, innovation, incentivation um, to really get an impact with what we do. So let's jump on that and go back onto your own company's journey. You set up this vision at the beginning and when companies start, it's often that they need to define clearly where can they make the biggest impact? Where are really their areas of focus? Because you can get diluted quite easily. Right. I've also checked on my research about your company that you've developed um, four areas of um, focus to, to sharpen your impact. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've defined those, how you have identified those? The first point or the, the one thing that really mattered in the beginning was to really find a language to really describe sustainability effects in the proper way. And that is not a romantic language. It's not a kind of let's save the world approach, but it's very down to business translating uh, sustainability effects into sales, into growth, into profitability. So when we um, looked at the UN's sustainability goals, sustainable development goals, the SDGs, the well-known, you know, we, we didn't just do a um, superficial assessment say, okay, that resonates well and that uh -huh. maybe not so much. But we try to really say, okay, what is the impact of those SDGs in those financial terms and where um, do we have the biggest impact? So before we could do that and before we could define our focus areas and really the, the SDGs that are most um, um, meaningful, relevant for our business, it was about analyzing the whole of our portfolio and understanding Uh, what footprint and handprint uh, effects we really have. For our listeners who are not familiar with the handprint concept, the handprint concept is an innovative and holistic approach to assess the ecological, economic and social sustainability impacts of products. The existing approach of the footprint focuses on negative ecological impacts on individuals, organizations or countries. By contrast, the handprint aims to measure and evaluate positive sustainability impacts. These include both environmental and social economic aspects. This means that the handprint aims to recognize and encourage innovative management practices that contribute to sustainable development. Starting with uh, life cycle management assessments in a really wide scale. Mm -hmm. And starting with uh, an, a methodology framework that really allows you to classify your own products, like we know from electric appliances from A down to E, so you, that you really have a differentiation. And finding that language that 
as said before, single voice of truth, this one mm. framework that maybe was the biggest part of the project. After that, saying, you know, what are the focal points was not that not okay. that hard to do that. So I guess defining that language, that, that's where your background as a communicator and as change expert came in handy. I very much think so, because you know what, what but that's an easy one. What you, what you can really see is that often it is overseen that any kind of organization can only just communicate in its own code. Mm -hmm. And you can, you know, it's never really useful telling a company to be good because the company is built on profit and loss. It's mm -hmm. simple as that. And you have to translate doing good and doing well. Otherwise, you won't have a chance to change it. And the political sphere, it's like, I mean, it's power or opposition. And if you if you act in a way that won't gain you votes, you're not really likely doing it. So just being good as a company is not a quality in its own. That's why I said, you know, saving the world. That's a great approach when it comes to, to your personal inspiration, what is driving you um, in a company, but it's not something that resonates well with a company. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable in the way that, um, you know, it's not, it's not code. It's not yes. something that, um, that a company can, um, even if it wants to, it's not something that um, a company system can handle because, I mean, it's all about your core data. It's all about the business-relevant core processes. And what happens in your ERP and not what just happens in, you know, in um, in your corporate brochures. And so that is, again, the, the basic point, translating um, positive and negative effects into its consequences and, and, and reframing the question um, of sustainability into the question, how do we make sure that we will still be earning good profits in 10 15, 20 years to come. And that is something that works quite well and gains us or gained us at least a lot of support, understanding, and I guess much better momentum than we would have had with uh, only just, let's say, moral or ethical mm. approach. Mm, okay, got it. So you talked briefly about this portfolio assessment with sustainability angle on it. Explain us a little bit more about what you're doing there, how you're assessing your product portfolio. First of all, maybe it's it's important to mention here that it's not only just a house methodology. It's not something that we do for Evonik ourselves, but it's, it's a framework that we developed um, together with uh, most other leading chemical companies or mm. the 30 biggest chemical players worldwide on the platform of the uh, WBCSD, World Business Council of Sustainable Uh, development. That's quite important because we need something like uh, comparability and not mm -hmm. just, you know, everybody come coming up with their own methodologies. That's one thing. But we were quite active, actively uh, supporting and developing this framework. The idea is the, the very core and the problem here, the challenge that when it comes to intermediates and to chemical products, you cannot say that a single product is sustainable or not per se. Why? Of course, you can look at the footprint alone. That's right. And you can reduce your um, your resource intake or reduce your, your carbon emissions. That's fine. But that's the easy part. But the question, is this product sustainable or not, very much depends on its application. Mm -hmm. you, can, you may take um, hydrogen peroxide and um, use it for water treatment. 
and it's highly sustainable and you can take the same substance and um, do rocket fuels, sell it to Russia. And I guess we would agree that would not be too sustainable at all. Mm-hmm. So again, it makes no sense to only just look at the product, but only on the combination uh, on okay. combination of a product in a sp- specific and defined application. That's why we classified all of our portfolio into what we today call product application region combinations, specific product in a defined application in a known regional context. And um, those units, those parks, today there are 560 of those parks that describe the whole of our product portfolio. Those parks we then... um, we then take to an assessment and look at them in different mm-hmm. signal categories. Like, are there hazardous substances involved? Uh, what is about the regulatory frameworks, not only just today, but also in years to come? What are customer requirements? What is the market average and what's over or above or below average? Things like that. Mm-hmm. And when it comes then to classifying the portfolio, this single rule here is if in any of those signal categories there is a red flag on, it can only just be a below standards product overall. Mm-hmm. Only if there is no negative in any single category, and you know, there is one or more positive or strong positive indications, only then it can be A plus or double plus. Which means it will be part of your product portfolio if... Yeah, that means that then, you know, we have uh, um, those above average products are what we call our next generation solutions. Okay. And that gives us the opportunity to directly steer and uh, channel uh, CapEx into those most advanced products and the growth of those products. Meaning that today we have a portfolio share of um, 37% uh, of next generation solutions Mm -hmm. and a wide range of performance, so neutral products. And for the future until 2030, we want to grow the portfolio share of those products to some 50%. So 50% who really have only green traffic lights on all those three um, elements. Green traffic lights plus, which are above average, which make makes it even more ambitious because, I mean, even if you have only green lights, but it's on average, it would not be in that class. It would be a performer doing no harm, doing no good, being somewhere in between. Yeah, so uh, the the investments go where the, re- where the high flyers are, where the really advanced products are. And so until 2030, we are going to invest three uh, billions of gross capex alone into those next generation solutions now. Wow. So um, take us a little bit into the boardroom because I guess um, it has been or there are quite some interesting conversations taking place. Um, my assumption would be it, it's get better as the board also gets more mature on those kind of conversations um, and also mature on the topic. But how do you deal with with non-sustainable but highly profitable um, products or highly profitable but non-sustainable products? I mean, that's that's a great point. I would not say that the discussion in the boardroom was really bad in the past, but it was quite tough and for a good reason, because if you go where, where it really matters, where you, where you uh, just put a hand on the DNA of a business when it comes to investments, it's always a tough discussion and it must be mm-hmm. because things should not just be done lightly or too easy hearted. So the thing is here, the the discussion on board level, but also with the businesses, improved just um, 
in the way that we made our own portfolio quality more transparent. Mm -hmm. And as you said, I mean, if you then have on one axis those sustainability criteria from A to E, and on the other axis you take the classical strategic roles from uh, restructuring or exit to mm -hmm. growth or accelerated growth, you'll find exactly what you said. You have a big chunk of well-performing products that may be also quite sustainable, You have some leggers who are not sustainable, but still earn you a good profit. And you may have some sustainable uh, products that are not profitable at all. The first thing now is you have to start and see where those products are. That alone has improved the discussion because yes. seeing is wow. puts us in a position to then talk about the strategic roles. And if we see that there is a non sustainable product that is uh, profitable then we get into a strategy dialogue with the um, with the business to make sure two options exit the mm -hmm. businesses within five years which is if it's highly profitable not something that you will do short term but maybe midterm or how do you get this product on the next level is it just a mm -hmm. matter of um, introducing more green energy or is it um, is it resource based is a problem more on the uh, on a circularity part in in the use space what is your problem why that why is the sustainability performance so bad and how can you if you don't want to exit your market how can you uh, change that over the coming years so the rule again is if that is the case in both extremes non-performers that are sustainable or performers that are unsustainable to come up as a business with a five-year strategy and in the midterm planning say we want to see that situation change. But it's interesting because what I'm hearing is also that you're using this assessment and the data you're gathering um, with this assessment to allow a more like fact-based and not emotion-based conversation in the boardroom, no? That's the core. And again, I mean, you can blame anyone for not having a good discussions if you don't have the facts at hand. Yeah. So how, I mean, that's, that's not just uh, specific to boardrooms, but how can you talk about transformation if you don't really have all the facts you need to, to oversee the whole picture? And again, that is why I said, I guess the most important thing was to, um, you know, elaborating this shared language, translating those effects into profit and loss and Uh, something that is connected to the core data of a business. Otherwise, it if it's, you know, only a matter of corporate responsibility, it will remain charity. Hmm. And being charity means it can do good, but it will never scale up. It will never be core business. Maybe a question that sounds silly and naive, but what was the main driver for Evonik to, to really push on that topic and really kind of leading on that topic the way you're doing this right now? Is it client demands or uh, were these more kind of expectations from the capital market and, you know, um, green financing, etc.? Um, both, but interestingly enough, you just picked out the right ones. I mean, many people, when it comes to sustainability, you know, first and foremost, think about regulation, disclosure requirements and things like that. That's really somewhere down the line. That was not really important. It was all about market expectations. And I mean, the most prominent uh, expectations are customer expectations. And we've seen a, quite a number 
of customers. And that's why sustainability assessments prove to be a very good early indicator. Mm-hmm. Customers with whom we had long-standing business relations and who then came from one day to another saying, if your additives don't allow for, let's say, recycling matrices, you know, IKEA was such an example, okay. until 2025, then you're out of business. Yeah, if you don't lower your um, your uh, the the carbon footprint in the use phase of our products, example of green tires, for example, then you're out of business. So there is a lot of um, of customer demand depending on the business. I mean, the closer you get to the to the end markets, if you come to the cosmetic industry, for example, mm-hmm. any kind of uh, microplastics or things is is an issue. Mm-hmm. So there is a strong market pull, and then again for the for the capital market uh, part, just to check the firmness, um, the the reliability of our own uh, sustainability strategy. That is where we took the capital markets as a proof point. Just building a green finance uh, framework and collecting so far one point um, three billions in green capital. Mm-hmm. Just you know, not just to take profit from lower capital costs which in a low interest environment was not the first okay. argument back then. But it was to just um, check if our concept of next generation solutions is accepted, has a firmness, a dignity, and the proof point um, so the, that you can build green finance on it. And that was the case. So that is where um, their um, investors are quite important to us as well. Mm, super interesting that you use this too as a proof of concept. And, and uh, right. So tell us a little bit about the, the green financing and, and the reporting that this also kind of uh, brings. Is this, you know, what requirements does the green finance reporting has in terms of complexity or additional information compared to normal financial r- reporting? I guess, you know, in, in the end, the, cl- the complexity may be quite similar. There is only just one big difference, which is that our financial reporting systems have developed over centuries, not just decades, but really they go back centuries. All mm-hmm. that we know about disclosure today in a financial context. And um, for the extra financials, we just have to build the same firmness and quality just within a few years. That is what really makes it even more challenging because we don't have the time to work over decades and centuries on that, but we have to come to solutions right now. It's also quite complex, you're right, in so far that you cannot look at climate or biodiversity or water separately, but all those things are closely interrelated. So it's not enough to just look at one um, category of sustainability. But again, I mean, that is something that that can be handled. The focus point today, in my opinion, is to really get access to the data and uh, to have the data quality that it takes to really build those um, internal systems as well. Mm-hmm. But that is that is a technical problem. And again, the sustainability reporting will improve over the years. And the quality of this and the availability of this data will grow over years. Mm, Yeah, sure. The only thing is that um, it should be taken into account that we cannot uh, get there in just one step. And that is something that I would, you know, that I'm quite skeptical about looking at the EU taxonomy where, you know, it's it's not the, the wrong idea. 
looking at the overall target, but sometime uh, more doing more is not better. You know what we need more um, um, convergence of different um, kinds of sustainability assessments, a, a clear framework that works in a global context, like for example. The EFRS does now with ISSB, with the International uh, Sustainability uh, Standards and mm. Reporting. That would be very helpful to have. Otherwise, if you have different regulation and different disclosure um, obligations in every region that you go, right. it will get quite complicated and it will help no one here and not really scale up sustainable solutions in the end. A quick stop to explain our listeners what the ISSB is. So in 2021, the IFRS Foundation announced the new standard setting board, the International Sustainability Standard Board, ISSB. The ISSB aims to create a comprehensive global set of sustainability-related disclosure standards. These are being designed to inform investors and other capital market participants about company sustainability-related risks and opportunities. As a result, these actors will be able to make informed sustainability decisions. In establishing these standards, the ISSB aimed to enable transparent, reliable and comparable reporting by companies on climate and other ESG issues. There is a whole number of challenges. First of all, I guess the biggest challenge when we, for a second, stay with the, with the disclosure part, the, maybe the biggest problem is here that what I described before, that you you cannot really tell on a product level if, if something is um, sustainable or not. And that is what the EU taxonomy does today, just, you know, not looking at this product application combinations, but saying a specific product is good or bad. And that, I mean, you can do that, but that's not really helpful. It, it's not really, it doesn't really describe your portfolio then. And that is a challenge because it also means that the manufacturer who does an electric battery, for example, then is, is rated deep green. But the supplier who, you know, who's delivering all the material it takes to build the battery may be bent in some aspects. Mm -hmm. And we will always have this kind of, you know, Conflicts in the value chains. We, 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 you know, we will always have spots in the market where we must honestly say they will never be deep green, but we need those products anyway, because without them, mm -hmm. there would no windmill be spinning. There would be no green battery. There would be no medical treatments and nothing. So it's not that easy in the assessment. That's, I guess, you know, the, this, just differentiation and more more focused view on uh, footprint effects that, of course, every company has to work on and bring down and get on its way to net zero. That's not mm -hmm. a question. Mm -hmm. But having these transformation requirements on one end, but also looking on the handprint effects that are desperately needed for a green and sustainable future, that is something that will take some time. Stefan, let's move a little bit into the more of the engagement elements of things. So you talked a little bit about the kind of the, the learning experience within the leadership team. I guess another thing is how do you create a sustainability culture within 
an entire organization on mm. that kind of diversity level that Ivonic is, on that geographical spread that, that you have. What do you do on that, on that front? That's a good one because you're right. I mean, sustainability is not just about the product portfolio. And that was, um, um, that was, was our access point as well. You know, when, when we looked at sustainability, we said that at least it's a process of business transformation. And for all that we cannot tell today and that we may not know about uh, this transformation, there is one thing that we do know, the trajectory that we see that will bring challenges are markets driven. That is what we address with our mm -hmm. next generation solutions. They can be uh, assets driven. That's mm -hmm. the transformation of our asset structure on off plants, because again, no customer will ask us to build in a heat pump, for example, but it makes sense reducing our footprint. So yeah. we look at this asset strategy separately and at our carbon roadmap. It's not just doing a, you know, a PR campaign, mobilization campaign. It's right the other way around. People within the company um, expect their employer to be sustainable. And if not so, they are going to leave the company or the, the best talents are going to leave the company or they won't come on board. There is not a single uh, interview that you do today um, where uh, sustainability is not really high on the priority list. So yeah. that's not a soft one, but it's about integrating um, sustainability aspects on every level of the HR process as well. Not waiting until people ask us in an interview, how is uh, Ivonic um, related to sustainability, but that we actively mm -hmm. um, look for people who bring in certain qualities that we take care of that in our interviews, in our trainings, in the way that we do business. Mm -hmm. And then again, it is what people very much look at in the companies, where does the money go? If you have great sustainability ideas, but nobody is going to invest, mm -hmm. or if there are no incentives in sustainable behavior, then you can tell a thousand stories about it. Nobody is going to adopt culturally. Mm. Yeah. So that's, again, it's the same as said before. It's about the integration into the core processes. Plus what we, um, that was the cornerstone that we just introduced this year's. Also having those three pillars of um, solutions, technologies, and culture integrated into the uh, short-term and long-term incentivation of our board and um, executives. Wow, it's really interesting. In terms of external engagement, so you mentioned already you've partnered with value chain actors to shape this um, product assessment or this portfolio sustainability assessment. Tell us a little bit, I guess you have also other kind of partnerships within the value chain and also with other partners. What are your kind of do's and don'ts, your key mm -hmm. learnings when it comes to setting up and successfully maintaining partnerships? Let's begin with the don'ts to end on a positive note. And the don't is never hand down challenges to other partners down the value chain. Because that is something that sometimes happens that companies only just move their challenges on to other partners saying, okay, we are going to be CO2 neutral, mm -hmm. carbon neutral, but only just, you know, 
putting the production to other parts and then uh, translating their own emissions into scope three emissions up the value chain. That doesn't make any sense. So mm. partnering, in fact, maybe is a crucial point here. Again, on both sides, partnering upstream and downstream, mm -hmm. simply because not only when it comes to circularity, but overall, most of the challenges are too bold, too big to be just uh, solved by one company mm -hmm. alone. Mm -hmm. That is something that a lot of companies today understand, also meaning that as a big player and a global company, you have to take care of the small and mid-side businesses. So part of our partner strategy is not just as Evonik, but also in the um, on for the um, German um, chemical foundation mm -hmm. and representation to work on the knowledge exchange be between the big players and the small ones, because it's not only just the disclosure requirements, but a lot of those life cycle assessments that we can do, mm -hmm. having thirty three thousand employees worldwide. But what if you are an S&P with maybe 50 employees. Yeah. And you don't have the capacity and you cannot leave those companies alone for your own interest, best interest, because these are our partners. So it's mm -hmm. our, in our own best interest to share our knowledge, to share assessments, to share quality levels. And one way of doing so is a, a really great, great, uh, initiative that we uh, started in the chemical industry, which is Together for Sustainability, mm -hmm. um, was a very clear proposition saying, as a supplier, you don't have to do uh, 30, 50 different assessments if you want to work with, um, with a company, but one assessment with TFS is enough to get access to BSF, Evonik, oh. Bayer, Covestro, you name it. Another quick break to explain what TFS is, Together for Sustainability. It's a member-driven initiative that raises CSR standards across the chemical industry and works to improve sustainability in chemical companies' operations and in those of their suppliers. It's, uh, you know, more than 30 companies putting their supply um, chain activities together there. Also meaning that suppliers that are not yet uh, fit to meet the standards of uh, these assessments, that they really get support, mm. help, and assistance to get there. It's not just saying, no, you're out, but it's about improving them. And uh, so that is, I guess, that has helped quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And on the other part, um, downstream, as said before, that is mainly driven by research and development. That is where the understanding of um, the chemical industry has totally changed back then in the old days. You know, people standing in white coats in a laboratory somewhere well hidden, mm -hmm. coming up with some new molecules and trying to sell them. That's long gone, but today it's really uh, working closely together with, um, with people from many different backgrounds. Your customer industries, maybe, you know, sometimes three, four, five different partners collaborating mm. on a product design from the very start. So wherever you look at from start to finish, partnering is absolutely key here. 
Last question, um, Stefan. Um, you, you already mentioned chemical industry. Um, and that's a field that's obviously under a lot of observation also from, from NGOs. And so how do you kind of work with or slash collaborate with NGOs? How do you kind of identify the key players? How do you um, uh, plan your engagement approach? Mm -hmm. First, Of all, I guess you know we sh we should um, we should note that it's important not only just for the chemical industry but for um, the industry in general to be observed, and that there is um, that um, critical of the observer on the other side. That that's good for all of us, mm. um, uh, not to get complacent. When it comes to collaborating with NGOs. Um, there are two aspects. One is that it needs a constant dialogue, not only just when you get into any kind of situation, crisis or uh, event, but that you to really have um, an ongoing stakeholder engagement to understand both sides and to work on, on, on mutual understanding. That's one thing. When it comes to collaboration, which is a step further, I guess it's important not to totally embrace the partner. But again, we have to accept that it would not be really helpful to lose every distance. Mm. Yeah. And those partners, NGOs, as well as the companies need some headspace to be authentic. Yeah. Mm. So those partnerships, we, we choose very reflective mm -hmm. and very selective. And going into partnerships then also doesn't mean that uh, the partners cannot be critical about each other, which is not only which not only means um, that the NGOs are allowed to be critical in observing uh, us as a company, but it's a mutual affair as well here because you know the only way to cooperate is with NGOs who are at least willing understanding that we are a potential partner, that mm. we are willing to take the challenge of this transformation and not just coming with, again, with a with a moral or ethical uh, standpoint that has no practical relevance or that you cannot put into action. Mm. So it needs this kind of openness and a certain distance on both parts. If that is the case, there are really great projects. We have a number of them. Maybe one that I could um, point out here is a, a collaboration with um, WWF and Biasdorf, so mm. with an NGO and a customer, mm. where we um, work on green palm oil and not just, you know, on an RSPO certification, but really on a plant level, on a smallholder farm level to improve farm situation and to cover all our palm oil needs from sustainable Sources and uh, in this triangle of mm. um, us as a supplier, Biasdorf as a customer, WWF as an NGO, that's a brilliant setup to really get forward, get some progress done, and at the same time never get complacent because mm. you always have your watch guard mm. from both sides. Oh, that's super interesting, Stefan. Thank you so much uh, for your time. And uh, yeah, all the best for your future endeavor. And I, I'm, you know, we wish you the best that one day you will make sustainability not needed anymore as a department within Evonik. Then good luck I with take that one. That. that would be great. Thanks, Anna. Thank you for listening to this Future Ready podcast. Future Ready 
is produced by COSIN, a global communications and change agency on a mission to shape healthier and thriving businesses. Find out more at wearecosin.com. This was the fourth episode in our sustainability series. In the upcoming episode, we will continue to talk to experts from different industries about their experiences and insights on sustainability. Be on the outlook for those. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review or forward this show to someone who you think will love it. Thank you very much for this. And until very soon. 